0: Well, please, if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis 34. Genesis 34. This morning, we conclude the narratives of Jacob that started back in Genesis 25. We'll, we'll Lord willing, return to Genesis again in time, but, but next week, we'll pick up our sermon series in, in Matthew, Kingdom Come. But today, Genesis 34 and 35, back to Bethel. Genesis 34 and 35, back to Bethel. As we start, though, would you please pray with me once more for our hearing and for the proclaiming of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we speak to our souls this morning. Be still. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. That, Lord, is our confidence as we come to you this morning in your Word. Lord, that our hearts can be stilled from the worries, from the dangers of life, because you are on our side, not because of our strength, not because of our worthiness, but because of your grace. So, Lord, this morning as we turn to your word to see the the dangers and the, the folly of sin, we pray that we would be all the more convinced that you are on our side and will be until the end. It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen. Well, anyone who spends much time with me will find out that I get queasy quite easily. Yeah, in fact, if I'm a passenger in a car often, I get car sick. I need to be the one driving, otherwise I can feel sick. The, The one time I ever tried to go scuba diving, I spent my time floating behind the boat, throwing up. As a young non-Christian, I went to see the Tarantino film, Sin City. I do not recommend it. Tarantino is, is known for his, his violence. And, and literally, in the movie, I, I left physically sick, disgusted by what I had seen, even as a non-Christian. There, there's something about great evil that, that can, for some of us, literally make us sick to the stomach. Well, this morning's passage is something like a Tarantino film with violence that can make you sick. Honestly, I, I feel compelled at the start to, to offer a warning about our passage this morning. It, it includes report of sexual violence. And our passage this morning calls us to consider here, near the end of of Jacob's story, will grace expire? Will the sordid sins reported in this story, the sordid sins of of Jacob's sons, his successors, will it be finally too much for God in his grace? These two chapters are proof positive of of what Paul writes in Romans 5. Where grace, or sorry, where sin increases, grace abounded all the more. Our big idea this morning, the sordid sins of the successors does not stop God's plan to establish his people. This one sentence summary of the two chapters the sordid sins of the successors does not stop God's plan to establish his people. As as Jacob's sons take. Center stage in Genesis 34. God's faithfulness in grace triumphs in Genesis 35. Once more, the sordid sins of the successors does not stop God's plan to establish His people. Our message this morning will have, have two points, the two chapters: man's wickedness in Genesis 34, and God's faithfulness in Genesis 35. Man's wickedness in Genesis 34 and God's faithfulness in Genesis 35. Let's start by reading all of Genesis 34 for our first point, man's wickedness. So read with me, starting in Genesis 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, He seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say say to me, I will give you. Ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem, And his father, Hamor, deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister, Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob... Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? The word of the Lord. Well, before we get into the details of chapter 34, I, I think it's helpful for us to consider why, why this story here. What, what is Moses' point in recording this story in particular? Well, first it, it sets us up for chapter 35, the events of 34... The danger that Simeon and Levi put their whole family in by, by attacking the city of Shechem, it, it opens the door for God to show his faithfulness in chapter 35. But it also begins an important discussion. Who is it among Jacob's sons will, that will be preeminent? The events of, of chapter 34 determine the future of the tribes that come from these sons of Jacob. Jacob. But most of all, it is a stark and gruesome picture of the wickedness of sin. Genesis, the, the book of beginnings, is, is laying the foundation for, for all that follows in the Bible and in all of history. You'll remember Genesis 3 told us the story of the first sin of, of Adam and Eve disregarding God's word. And instead, instead choosing themselves to be God's. But the rebellion of sin against our good God was was utter folly and and ruinous. God himself makes an assessment of their sin in Genesis 6-5. Do you remember it? Before the flood. It says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. When God looks, he sees great wickedness. And only evil continually. Well, what did the flood do? Well, even after the flood and the recreation through Noah, man's heart was still evil. And this has been the story ever since. Every chapter of Genesis is marked by the brokenness of man's sin. But the evidence in this chapter is is overwhelming. To remind you, Jacob and his family, his wives, his children, their flocks have come back from the land of Haran. They've arrived back in Canaan. They've settled here in Shechem on a little plot of land he bought. And verse 1 records that, that his daughter, Dinah, Jacob's daughter, by, the, by Leah, goes out to see the women of the land. It's, it's an ominous start. We shouldn't read this as the, the innocent comings and goings of a, of a teenage daughter. No, the description has, has negative connotations. The only other time... The women of the land are mentioned. It's when Rebekah complains to Isaac about Esau's wives, the women of the land. But the story gets, gets very plain in verse 2. The son of the leading man in the city, Shechem, committed an outrageous evil against Dinah. Moses uses the same words that the law will later describe as an act of sexual violence punishable by death. Shechem seizes her and and lies with her. We have to call it what it is. This is is rape. Sexual intercourse against her will. What Moses describes here is an act of great wickedness springing from Shechem's own heart. He saw her and his own desires led him to this evil against her. This is the the same pattern of the first sin, Eve, seeing and seizing. Though the Bible, I I, I admit, uses discretion in describing it, the Bible does not hide the wickedness of mankind, nor the the pain of those who experience that wickedness. Some of us this morning can can identify with, with Dinah, that you've been there against your will, Let's, let's call it what it is. This is evil. This is heinous. This is utterly odious. It leads, it says, to Dinah being humiliated. But we serve a God who has a perfect hatred of evil and promises not only to destroy all evil, but to make right what we cannot The promise is that that one day all wounds will be healed for those who are in Christ. By his wounds, we are healed. But in this twisted world, Shechem claims again and again to love Dinah. That he wants to marry her now. No mention of what Dinah wants though. What a terrible state of affairs. You wonder, what are we to do? What, what is justice in this situation? Well, Jacob hears of it in verse 5, but holds his peace while his sons are with the livestock. It's not exactly clear why he is silent. It certainly could be that he's afraid to act while his sons are away. But his sons hear of it and do come. And we, we join them in their response. Verse 7, they are indignant. They're deeply grieved. They're shocked, and not just angry, but very angry, furious, full of wrath. They say what what Shechem has done is outrageous. It's appalling, It's, it's unbearable. Something, it says, must not be done. You know, this is the truth of mankind in our sin. As outrageous as these acts might be, it is our nature to do what must not be done. Adam and Eve did what must not be done, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, so all of us, with their nature, do the same. God, as creator, has has rights to determine what what may and must not be done. He created us good to do as as He designed, but but in our sin, we are all bent inward, away from God's good design. You know your your sin, my sin doesn't need to make the evening news for it to be outrageous in God's sight. No, that would downplay God's righteousness. No, God is is too pure even to look at what we might call slight evils. You know, we might consider them what what the author Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins. In a, a book by that title... He argues that Christians too easily ignore some sins, sins we deem as acceptable. Sure, we can all agree this morning that sexual violence is outrageous. But a a lingering look at that image, that's okay. We tolerate anger, selfishness, pride, judgmentalism, worldliness, envy. This is not to say that that all sins are the same, but but all sins are sins. They all fall short of the glory of God. They're hated and opposed by God. And its wages all are death. Part of the purpose, friends, of Genesis 34 is to hold up to our faces a mirror. To see the wickedness not of just those sins, but our sins. Our sins. Do you feel in your gut how atrocious sin is? Any sin? We had frankly a, a revolting experience while at the mall last week. We were helping helping family shop for a new couch. I had been holding Asa, our 1-year-old for about 20 minutes, but he just didn't seem right. So Rebecca offered to to take him to see if she could comfort him, and literally in less than a minute of taking him, he vomited all over, on Rebecca's hair, Rebecca's coat, the couch we were shopping for, the rug underneath it. As bad as I felt for Asa, I felt much worse for Rebecca. And a scene like that out in public evokes a visceral response. Our saleswoman was, was incredibly polite, didn't skip a beat, but, but you can't help but be disgusted by the, the sight and smell of vomit everywhere in your hair. Friends, that should be our response to sin. There's no respectable vomit. It's all unclean, nasty, and revolting. So, just as much as Shechem's sins should evoke our gag reflex, so should your pride, your anger, your worldliness. They are, in fact, things that must not be done. But it's sad to say that this is just the beginning of the sordid sins of chapter 34. In verse 8, Shechem's father approaches Jacob and his sons with a proposal. He wants to secure Dinah as wife for his son. He offers in verse 10 that they can dwell with them as, as one people. And the son makes an, a generous offer in verse 12. Whatever bride price they request, as high as they can name, he will give it. There's an understated threat here. These are the cursed sons of Canaan. And they're proposing that the family of Israel become one with them. Their proposal would obliterate the line of promise, blending it with the cursed line of Canaan. Well, in verse 13, there's a shift in the narrative. In verse 8, Hamor had been addressing them That is Jacob and his sons. In verse 11, Shechem, the son, says to her father and her brothers. But now in verse 13, it is the sons only who answer. The plan of the sons of Jacob. And it uses a word that we're familiar with in this narrative of Jacob, isn't it? They answer Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. With deceit. The same word used to describe their father's actions when he stole his his brother's blessing. Like father, like sons, engaging in the deceitful schemes. You might think that this particular sinful tendency, deceit, is hereditary. But friends, brothers, sisters, all sin is passed on from generation to generation in Adam. They hide their intentions from the Hivites. They use circumcision in their as a prop in their plot. They make an excuse in verse 14. It it sounds reasonable enough, right? If they are to be one people, the males among the, the Hivites must also be circumcised. But in speaking of circumcision, they make no reference to Yahweh who gave it. They make no reference to the meaning of the covenant sign. This is not evangelism inviting them to know the one true God, to join them in God's promises to Abraham. No. They empty the covenant sign of its meaning. They abuse it in order to inflict vengeance. They too, the sons of Jacob, are capable of heinous evil. Taking what God created good, circumcision, and using it for great evil, Murder. Unfortunately, Hamor and Shechem are deceived. They're convinced. In verses 18 through 24, they they convince their city, all the men in their city, to join them in being circumcised. In verse 23, they use the the false hope of riches. Will not their livestock, their property, all their beasts be ours? So in verse 24, every male among them is circumcised. And now the plot is in full swing. On the third day, verse 25, when the men are sore, two of Jacob's sons pounce on the unsuspecting city. Because Shechem had defiled their sister Dinah, they murder every man. Again, the Bible is discreet in describing sin, but don't let that fool you. There are piles of dead bodies in Shechem, blood dripping from swords, staining their robes, women and children screaming. This is real and gruesome. Moses makes clear in verse 25 that the two perpetrators of this massacre are Dinah's brothers, sons of the same mother, Leah. They rescue Dinah from Shechem's house and and all the other sons joined them in plundering all the wealth of the city. Church, I I want to be clear here. This is a miscarriage of justice. Though Simeon and Levi are, are right to be angered by the outrageous sin against their sister, this is not a righteous response. You might object. Well, won't Israel do a lot of the same thing later under Joshua? Well, there's a, a, a big and an important difference. The conquest of Canaan under Joshua was commanded by God. It was not personal vengeance. God has that right. Simeon and Levi do not. The, the least we can say is that the Bible upholds the lex talionis. You've, you've heard of it. The law of retaliation. Where the punishment for a crime must not exceed the magnitude of the crime. An eye for an eye. So the law might require Shechem's death. But, but certainly no one else's. No friends this is not justice. We have an outrageous rape. Punished by an even more outrageous Massacre. These are Jacob's successors. His sons who will make up the people of Israel. Another generation of sinners desperately in need of grace. It's a a good time, now that we're near the end of Jacob's narrative, to to point out something about the entire narrative. The, The Bible does not whitewash its heroes. If you can call them that. Jacob, the the namesake of the whole nation of Israel, is a scoundrel. And the Bible does not try to hide that. And I think that is some of the strongest evidence of the Bible's trustworthiness. You know, if you were going to fabricate a religion and the holy text behind it, you'd probably try to hide the flaws and, and failures of its figures. But the authors of the Bible have have nothing to hide since it is the simple truth and it shows us the true hope in God's grace. None of us have any reason to doubt what is in the Bible, what it reports. And especially this morning if you are here and not a Christian, I exhort you to trust the Bible. It is true. It does not manipulate fact. It presents the truth as it is. You know, Jacob will later in Genesis comment on this episode, what happens here in in chapter 34, when at the end of his life he is telling his sons what will happen in the days to come as he blesses them. He says of Simeon and Levi in Genesis 49, verses 6 and 7, In their anger they killed men. In their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So when Simeon and Levi later inherit the land, well, Simeon inherits land in the midst of Judah, and Levi inherits cities scattered among the rest of their land in judgment for this fierce anger and cruel wrath, what we see here in Genesis 34. You know, I think Genesis 34 might be one of the best biblical illustrations of what James says in James 1.20. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Is that not clear? Simeon and Levi's wrath does not lead to God's righteousness. What does lead to God's righteousness? Well, that's why we read Romans 12 earlier in our service, where where Paul tells the the Roman Christians to never avenge themselves, but to leave it to the wrath of God. This doesn't mean that Christians are to be apathetic toward evil. No. Paul begins that section in Romans 12 by telling us to abhor what is evil. Abhor it and hold fast to what is good. So Simeon and Levi are right here in this chapter to abhor what is evil but they only abhorred half of the evil. They abhorred Shechem's evil, but they tolerated their own. You know, that's a good measure of your own spiritual maturity. To hate evil, but especially to hate your own evil. Whose sins should you be most concerned with in descending order? First, your own. Second, those who have personally wronged you. Third, the sins in your local church. Fourth, in the universal church. And only fifth and finally, the sins of the world. But but how often do we reverse that order? We become occupied with the sins of the world while ignoring our own sins. Or the sins of those in our care here in this local church. Or in the words of a tweet... An immature Christian has a PhD in other sins and a junior high diploma in their own. An immature Christian has a PhD in other sins and a junior high diploma in their own. Even as you listen, are you thinking about how someone else needs to hear this rather than yourself? Do you tolerate in yourself what you are so quick to judge in others? Anger, selfishness, pride, worldliness, that very judgmentalism. And how often are we tempted to take matters into our own hands, as if vengeance was ours, that it's for us to exact justice and repay. No, the biblical command is Romans 12, 21, Do not be overcome by evil, like Simeon and Levi but overcome evil with good. Yes, the the police, the military, the courts have their God-given authority, as Romans 13.4 says, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. There is a place for that. But your command is never to avenge yourself. Rather, it is to overcome evil done against you and others with good. Man's wickedness, what we see here in Genesis 34, is great. Are ours included? But only God has the right to take vengeance. Rather, our pattern is to follow Christ. 1 Peter 2.23 says, When Jesus was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Jesus did not return evil for evil. Rather, he entrusted himself to the just judge, God himself, and overcame evil with good. So when evil is done against us saints, we do not return it with evil. We rather entrust ourselves to the just judge and overcome evil with good. Even if you consider the evil done against you as outrageous, It will never be as outrageous as the evil that Jesus himself endured. He alone, more than anyone else in all of history, deserved worship and love from everyone, but instead received hatred and death. As terrible as the rape and massacre of Genesis 34 are, there has never been a greater injustice than the murder of the Holy Son of God. But he was able to endure even that great injustice because he entrusted himself to our God who judges justly. And his death wasn't merely an injustice, but he died as a substitute in our place. Bearing the wrath of God against our sins. And three days later, raising him up from the dead in victory over Evil so that all who turn away from their sins in repentance and trust in his death can be forgiven of even their outrageous sins. I am reminded of the example of our sister Corey Ten Boom. Have you heard of her? As Christians, she and her family sheltered Jews during the Holocaust. But, but they were eventually discovered and sent to a concentration camp where many members of her family, including her sister Betsy, died. After the war, Corey traveled Europe sharing her experiences. And, and in Munich, in Germany, she got a chance to truly entrust herself to the just judge rather than taking vengeance. One of the SS guards at Ravensbrück, her, her camp, came to hear her. She writes, he came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming, and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Line," he said, to think that, as you say, he washed away my sins. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. So again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along through my arm and through my hand a current seemed to pass from me to him while from my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies he gives along with the command the love itself. Church, just as our sister Cory followed Jesus, don't take vengeance into your own hands. Entrust yourselves and the great evils done against you to the just judge and rather overcome evil with good. What you need, he will supply. God is faithful. And that's exactly what we see fulfilled in the life of Jacob. And our our second point this morning in Genesis 35, God's faithfulness. Genesis 34 ends with with Jacob concerned for himself. Because of of Simeon and and Levi's rash anger, he is afraid that the nations will, will take vengeance. His sons have escalated anger. And it's natural that their neighbors will retaliate and destroy Jacob and his whole household. But God is faithful. Before we read Genesis 35, I want to to note that this is is the end of Jacob's section in the story. He won't die until the the end of the book, but the rest of the story focuses on his son Joseph. So Genesis 36 is the the generations of Esau, and, and Joseph's story starts for us in Genesis 37. So here we are at the end. After the last chapter, how do you think Jacob's story will end? Before we read Has God finally had enough of the mess of this family? Well, read with me Genesis 35, starting in verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. And purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them on the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were round them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under the oak below Bethel. So he called its name Elan Bekof. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, "'Do not fear, for you have another son.' And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Anai. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were a hundred and eighty years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. The word of the Lord. So how does Jacob's story end? After the disaster of last chapter? well, Jacob's story ends with God's faithfulness. His faithfulness to Abraham, to Isaac, now to Jacob and the generations to come. You know, there's, there's one startling difference between Genesis 34 and 35. Did you count how many times God's name shows up in Genesis 34? Zero. Zero. Zero times in Genesis 34. But at least 18 times in Genesis 34. And more, if you want to count the name Israel which includes the name of God, El. If chapter 34 was about man and his wickedness, chapter 35 is its contrast, filled with God in his faithfulness. It's the first word of our chapter, God. God speaks to Jacob again and calls him to leave Shechem and go to Bethel, the house of God, and and make an altar there. So Jacob turns to his family, calls them to prepare they're to put away their, their foreign gods like the, the idols that Rachel had stolen from her father Laban. Verse 3 is a significant statement, a testimony in Jacob's own words of God's unfailing faithfulness. Jacob calls this God, the God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. That's present tense answers Today. God has consistently responded to Jacob in every time of trouble and even when he did not call. God has been, he says, invariably faithful to his promise with me wherever we have gone. This is the promise that started his journey in Genesis twenty-eight fifteen. God promised him at Bethel, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Yes, God has been with him wherever he has gone, even Shechem. Church, look back on your week, your year so far, now a quarter done, your life in Christ. God has been with you every step of the way. There is not a time that you have not been in the grip of relentless grace. Even as faithful as the sun and moon are in their courses above, they from time to time are eclipsed by shadow. But not so with God. With the Father of lights, James says, there is no variation, no shadow due to change. He is always the same, unshaken by the schemes of man, constant in his purpose toward those he has chosen to receive his grace in Christ. And of course it is this confidence in God's past faithfulness that fuels Jacob's current obedience. Genesis 34 ended with with the fear, his son's rash violence bringing trouble on him, making him stink to the inhabitants of the land. But as he obeys God, leaving Shechem to go to Bethel, God is faithful again to protect them. Verse 5 says, A supernatural terror, a terror from God, fell on the cities around them so that they did not pursue them. Wonder what what, what that might have looked like. Fear in every city as they pass by. Again, Jacob is kept wherever he goes, despite the folly of his sins, his son's sins. And he comes back to Bethel at last. It is where God had revealed himself to Jacob at the first, in the darkest night of his life fleeing for his life, alone in the wilderness. And you'll remember, he had been guilty of of lying, of using the Lord's name in vain, of of dishonoring his father, of stealing and, and doubting God's promise. And this sin, we know, deserves justice, deserves death, the wages of sin. What it earns is death. But what he got instead was grace. God revealed to him that stairway of angelic activity, the promise that God would be with him to keep him wherever he goes. And here he has brought him back, faithful to the last. For some reason, in verse 8, we learn that that his mother's nurse is with him, but dies and is buried. In verse 9, God appears to Jacob again, to bless him and reiterate the promises to him again. First, in verse 10, Jacob's name. This might sound familiar. Jacob got this new name, you remember, when he wrestled with the angel in Genesis 32. Here God reminds him of his new name, Israel, of his real but gradual transformation by God's grace. And in verses 11 and 12, we have another restatement of the Abrahamic promise. Much like the one that he had received back in Bethel the first time. In verse 11, God identifies his name. I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. This is the name that he had revealed to, to his grandfather, Abraham, in Genesis 17. He is the God of all power. Because of his power, he accomplishes what he has promised. And so he commands, be fruitful and Multiply. The command first given to Adam, to repeated to Noah, is repeated again here. God desires an increase of his image bearers. And here, particularly, his covenant people. We know that God has promised all the way since Abraham that, that his descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the sea, as countless as the stars. So his nation is to grow, be fruitful and Multiply. And we're reminded here that that one day among his descendants will be royalty, will be kings. This again is a repetition of Genesis 17, verse 6. Where God speaks to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. More repetition of the promises. And more in verse 12. The land, the promise of the land. What was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, though it is not theirs yet, God will not abandon his promise. He will give it one day to Isaac's, or sorry, Jacob's descendants, to his offspring after him. Time and time and time again, saints, God does not abandon his promises to his people, ourselves included. You know, hypothetically, if if we were to receive new revelation beyond what's in the Bible already written down for us, it could never reverse what God has already promised. It would simply be a repetition of what He has already said. He is faithful. How many times have we heard these promises in Genesis told again and again? Your story too. Whatever ups and downs it has will end with the triumph of God's grace and faithfulness to you. You one day will inherit the promises that he has made to you perfectly and finally. So whatever path is ahead for you, you are bound for the promised land, the land that God has promised you. There is a light at the end of your tunnel, however dark it might be today. And that light is the glory of God in perfect communion with the perfected saints forever. In the last verses of our chapter, Moses records some final details. Jacob's 12th and final son is born, the second by his favored wife, Rachel, named Benjamin. But but the labor causes Rachel's death. That might seem like like a contrast. God just promised Jacob blessing. This certainly does not seem like a blessing. His favored wife dying. Well, first of all, God's promises of blessing does not mean no hardship. We've observed this in the story of Jacob. It chiefly means God's presence through hardship. But would, I be, would you be surprised if I told you That this too, Rachel's death, is evidence of God's faithfulness. What has God promised? Well, God promised that the wages of sin is death. That all those in Adam will die. And he is faithful to even this promise. In verse 22, Reuben, the firstborn, maybe in an attempt to usurp his, his father's place, sleeps with his father's concubine... That'll be important at the end of Genesis. And finally, Jacob comes to his father Isaac after decades and, and with his brother Esau buries him when he is old and full of days. If you remember back in Genesis 28, the, the great if of Jacob's vow if you keep me and I come to my father's house in peace, well, it's fulfilled. God's faithfulness was unerring. Church, the the story of Jacob's life is the story of the grip of relentless grace. When we take all these 11 chapters in full view, the word that defines them all is grace. Grace is God's bestowal of blessings on those who do not deserve them. Has not Jacob's life, no less here at the end, been marked by blessing after blessing? And though, certainly, Jacob has evidenced growth through it, it is absolutely clear, again, here at the end, that neither he nor his successors have those blessings because they've earned it. This is grace. And so, to you, Christian, all the blessings that we have in Christ are gifts Of grace, forgiveness, adoption, new life, a coming inheritance. Nothing you have is what you deserve. Frankly, if if we got what we deserved, we would all be condemned to hell today. But because, because Christ bore the terrors of hell on the cross, by faith we have access into grace In which we stand. Because God is faithful, even in the midst of our wickedness, God's blessings overflow to us in Christ. So, Christian, we can look to the future with confidence because God is faithful that our sin will not exhaust His grace, that His power will keep us until by His good pleasure we reach Canaan's fair, and happy land. Let's pray. Our Father, we exalt you and praise your name for your inexhaustible grace toward us. Lord, that you are faithful in your promise to keep us, even despite our great wickedness. Father, we pray this morning that you would humble us in the sight of the wickedness of sin, that we would be renewed in our hatred of what is evil, and that we would cling to what is good. Father, that we would hate not only evil against us, but our own evil, the evil that that brought Jesus to the cross. Father, this morning we pray that you would move us by your faithfulness and your grace, your love first towards us, or to love others the same way, that we would overcome evil not by evil, but by good. It's in Christ's name that we pray this. Amen.